we're going to have a change of pace. We've been going through big sections of scripture in the book of Acts. Like last time it was the entire chapter, chapter 12. And then the one before that we did the entire chapter 10. So we're going to go to just three verses today. Acts 13 verses 1 to 3. Okay, let's pray. Lord, would you, would you um, come and open up your word to our hearts? Lord, I think of Lydia at the riverside, how the Lord opened up her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. There was a work of your spirit opening up the heart. And even as Christians, Lord, we need our hearts to be open. Sometimes they can be closed. And we pray that you would reverse that, open them up, make us ready to hear eager to hear the word of God, desirous to be transformed by it. So Lord, do that work in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's read from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Okay, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch and the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Acts chapter 13 is a turning point in the book of Acts. It's one, you can call it one of the hinges of history. In a very real sense, just the fact that you today as a Gentile are saved and are meeting with other Gentiles in a church, you can trace the roots of that all the way back to Acts chapter 13. Because in Acts chapter 13, for the very first time in history, you have an integrated church of Jews and Gentiles sending out a missionary team to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. This had never been done before. So Paul and Barnabas are going to be sent out by the Spirit, and their primary audience, although they're going to be going to synagogues, but they're going to also be reaching Gentiles as part of their effort to uh, bring the gospel to the lost. Now, the book of Acts really can be outlined easily from chapter 1, verse 8. There, Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. And so you could break up the book of Acts into three parts. The disciples being witnesses in Jerusalem, then the disciples being witnesses in Judea and Samaria, and then the disciples being witnesses to the remotest part of the earth. So Acts 1 through 7, they're in Jerusalem. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 28, the authorities said, you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. So they had been witnesses to Jerusalem. And then in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, you have them being witnesses in Judea and Samaria. In fact, in chapter 8, you remember there was a persecution that came about because Saul was ravaging the church. And in 8.1, it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. 
And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So in chapter 8, for the first time, the disciples are being scattered. They're leaving Jerusalem because of the persecution, and they're going through Judea and Samaria, the exact same places that Jesus had said they would be his witnesses. And in verse 4, it says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So now they're preaching the word in Judea and Samaria. But when we come to chapter 13, the disciples are going to become witnesses to the remotest parts of the earth. They're going to be sent out of Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem, and now they're going to all the other areas in the known world. Now also when we come to Acts chapter 13, we see another change. There's going to be a transfer of attention from the Apostle Peter to the Apostle Paul. In the first 12 chapters, Peter is the primary player. He takes center stage. We read about him over and over again. Starting in chapter 13, the primary player is Paul. Starts off as Saul, but very early on in his first missionary journey, his name's going to be changed to Paul. And instead of Barnabas and Saul, it's going to become Paul and Barnabas. He's going to take center stage, and the rest of the book of Acts is about his ex exploits for Christ. Now, last time we took a look at chapter 12, but we didn't look at the last verse. So let's pick up in Acts 12, verse 25, because it provides for us a fitting introduction into chapter 13. It says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. As you re will recall with me, that um, Paul and Barnabas were sent on a mission from the church in Antioch to the church in Jerusalem. And it was occasioned by the fact that this guy named Agabus, a prophet, had come down from Jerusalem to Antioch he had delivered a prophecy, and he had said there's going to be a great famine. And this actually took place in, the, place in the days of Claudius. So the church, in order to prepare for this famine, which was going to mean hardship for the saints, especially in Jerusalem, they took up a collection, they gave it to Paul and Barnabas, and they sent them on a mission to Jerusalem to hand over this, these monies, which they did. They gave it to the elders there in the church in Jerusalem. Once that had been done, verse 25 says, they've returned now back to Antioch, and they returned with another guy named John Mark. This is the author of the Gospel of Mark. This, this is a man who later became a traveling companion of Peter, and he's going to end up going on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. He's the nephew of Barnabas. So anyway, he returns with them back to Antioch, and that sets the stage now for chapter 13. And I've decided to call this message the Antioch Five. Because here in the church at Antioch, there are five primary men that are described for us. And we're told about their giftings. So what I want you to see is something about the leadership of the church of Antioch. So we're going to really dig in and, and study the leaders that were leading this whole movement. And you remember that Antioch is really the first integrated church that we find in the New Testament. You've got Greeks and Jews all together in one assembly, and it's multiplying quickly, and Paul and Barnabas have been teaching them for an entire year, and so they're well taught, 
that sets the stage now to see who the leaders of this particular church were. And there's really only two things I want to say about these leaders. They were a diverse team, and they were a devoted team. They were diverse, very different, but they were also very devoted, very committed to serving the Lord and the church. So let's take the idea of diversity first. So, who were they? Well, we can say many things about them. The first thing we notice about them is that they were a plurality. When you came to the church at Antioch, you didn't find one guy who was the leader of the church. In fact, we read about five men. Their names are Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaen, and Saul. We're told that they were prophets and teachers. But the thing I just want you to notice quickly, and I won't take a long time on this because we've already hit this idea before, is that there was a plurality. You will look in vain in your New Testament to find one leader of a church or of a city. That's just not how they set up their churches. They set up their churches with various men all working together to shepherd and to teach and to exercise the gift of prophecy. Um, Even the apostolic teams worked as teams instead of one guy, right? Peter went with John. Paul went with Barnabas and John Mark or Silas or Timothy. There, There was always a group. And that even goes down to this idea of prophets. For example, if you look back at chapter 11, verse 27, it says, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Agabus didn't come down by himself. He came down with a team of prophets. (laughs) So there was a group of them. These prophets, they came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and then Agabus was the one who delivered the prophecy. But there were other prophets that were with him at that time. And in here in chapter 13, we find that in the church in Antioch, not just Jerusalem, but here in Antioch, there was also a group of prophets, prophets and teachers. And I just think there's such great wisdom in setting up churches this way, because what happens if you have one power-hungry, lone guy who goes off the rails, and he exerts his self-will And he becomes the one that says, hey, the buck stops with me, and this is what we're going to do, even though it's not the will of God. You have all kinds of problems in that particular church, and the people are the ones that suffer. But if you have a group of men working together to shepherd and to minister to the church, you have men that are having to learn to work together. They have to be humble enough to submit to one another and be accountable to each other, to confront each other if one guy starts going wrong, and seeking the will of God together. So there's just health. There's benefit to that. Okay, so that's the first thing I want you to see. Secondly, these men were from different religious backgrounds. The first one mentioned is Barnabas. Barnabas was from the island of Cyprus. He was a Jew. Saul was up north from Tarsus. So these were... Hellenistic areas, Greek-speaking, Greek culture. They, they, they didn't come from Palestine. They came from non-Palestinian areas, but they were still Jews. So these are Hellenistic Jews. On top of that, you've got a fellow named Simeon. And that word Simeon, the name Simeon is a Jewish name. So we assume he was probably Jewish. Uh, he comes from a place called Cyrene. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But that was not in Palestine either. There's a fellow named Lucius here. I'm sorry, Lucius is from, Cy- from Cyrene. Simeon was called Niger. 
Uh, Lucius is from northern Africa. It's possible that there was a Jewish colony down in Cyrene and he came from that area, but it's also possible that he came from a non-Jewish background entirely. We just don't know. Menaean, we're told, grew up with Herod. Herod was an Edomite. And so Menaean probably grew up understanding about Judaism, but probably not committing himself to it. The Herods didn't commit themselves to Judaism. They used their understanding of Jewish ways to their advantage, but they were not devout Jews. So you have a mixed bag here. You have people from various kinds of religious backgrounds all thrown together in one church, and they're there uh, leading and ministering to this church. And they really are an accurate representation of the entire church. Because remember, this church was like a melting pot. You have Greeks and Jews. You have people that came down from Cyrene and they were preaching to Greeks. People from Cyprus had come over. Saul, one from Tarsus was there. Um, and then you had all these Greeks within the city of Antioch coming to faith in Christ. So there's all of these various backgrounds coming together within the church. So the leadership being so diverse are just a good representation of the rest of the body. They look like the rest of the church. Okay, we also find that these were men from different geographical backgrounds. I've already mentioned Barnabas is from Cyprus, which is an island right off into the Mediterranean Sea, not far from Tyre and Sidon. Saul is from up north in Tarsus, just kind of getting into Asia Minor there. Menaean, it says he was brought up with Herod, and since Herod ruled over Judea and Jerusalem, he was probably brought up within Palestine, probably in Judea. Lucius was from Cyrene, and if you take a look at a map, Cyrene is a coastal city on the northern tip of Africa, just west of Egypt. So Lucius is from Africa. And then we're told that um, Simeon was called Niger. The word Niger means dark or swarthy. And so some have conjectured that they called him that as a nickname because he too was from Africa and had dark skin. Now that's conjecture. We don't know for sure, but that's just what some people have thrown out there as a possibility. So they're from different geographical backgrounds. They're from different religious backgrounds. And there's a plurality of them. They are also men with different gifts of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1. There were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Two different gifts of the Holy Spirit, prophecy and teaching. 1 Corinthians 12, 29 says, all are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? And of course, the expected answer is no, they're not. Not everybody's a prophet, not everybody's a teacher. So let's think about these two gifts for a minute and contrast them. Uh, what does a prophet do? What is he like? And what does a teacher do? What is he like? Well, a prophet is someone who brings forth revelations from the Lord. A prophet is one who speaks as the Spirit gives him the inspiration to speak. And so it usually be a spontaneous utterance that he would give, being inspired by the Lord to deliver a message to the church. It would come across more or less spontaneously. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 3 says that the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. So edification is to build up believers. 
exhortation is to urge believers to do something that God wants them to do and consolation means comfort it's to comfort believers uh, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 3 in that chapter he's comparing and contrasting tongues with prophecy and he speaks if a man he says if a man speaks in a tongue he does not speak to men but he speaks to God but if a man prophesies he speaks to men and these are the results he builds them up he urges them to do the will of God and he comforts them so in that respect prophecy doesn't seem uh, totally supernatural sometimes we think of the gift of prophecy as being this fore foretelling of the future we did find that in, in Agabus's prophecy he predicted a famine that was to come and later in the book of Acts he's going to predict that Paul's going to have his hands bound when he gets to Jerusalem so he had the ability to foretell the future and sometimes that is one aspect of prophecy but prophecy can take more than one form it can take a foretelling form which means that it's it's, it's a gift given to somebody evidently to minister to Christians primarily that's what we find it in the book in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians 14 it was to speak to men to build them up well you don't build up non-Christians you build up believers in their faith so this is a gift primarily for the church to build up believers and to urge them on and to comfort them when they're grieving sometimes it'll take a very supernatural form where God will give you a message about something that's going to take place many times it won't be that So how would teaching differ from prophecy then, if they're not the same gift? Well, the, the gift of teaching is the ability that someone has from the Holy Spirit to study, research, meditate, and compare Scripture to Scripture, and then instruct the people of God and explain to them the Word of God. So prophecy is more on the spontaneous side, teaching is more on the preparatory side where you're taking time to really dig into the Word of God and then bring instruction from the Word in this particular church you had both prophets and teachers both were needed for the health of the church it seems to me we were probably way more lopsided on the side of teaching today um, it would probably be very good for us if the Lord gave us some prophets or at least some Christians that could prophesy in fact in the book of first Corinthians he says I, I want you all to prophesy and you should pray that you would prophesy he even tells them there so I don't know if we're being obedient to that scripture are you ever praying that God would enable you to prophesy that should be something that we do um, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good. So don't despise prophecy. I, I see prophecy as taking a, uh, like a, a grade level, like from this kind of form to this kind of form to this kind of form. You have some very supernatural types of prophecy where they're actually saying what's going to happen you have other types where people are speaking as the Lord gives them the ability to, to speak forth spontaneously something that he has just put on their heart I, I see that our sharing time that we do every Sunday is an opportunity for prophecy to happen you don't have to say thus saith the Lord 
you can say, you know, the Lord really put this on my heart and powerfully impressed on me this last week, this thing. And I just want to share that with you. That could be a form of prophecy. You're not, you're not preparing ahead of time and taking notes and delivering a teaching. It's not like that. But you are spontaneously delivering something that the Lord has given to you. So um, there was prophets, there was teachers. They also came from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Remember, we're looking at the diversity of this team. Different socioeconomic backgrounds. Okay, think about Saul. Saul was raised under the tutelage of Gamaliel, one of the greatest Jewish teachers of that day. Um, So he had an excellent education, very finely educated as a Jew. Menaean, it says he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch was the guy who actually puts John the Baptist to death. He's brought up with him. Maybe some kind of a family acquaintance or um, a, a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. I'm not sure exactly how this worked, but he was, he was brought up. It, 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 it seems to be saying he was raised with him. They knew each other as they're being brought up. So if that was the case, then Menaean was probably raised in having a place of prominence and power and luxury because Herod was royalty. He would have access to all kinds of riches that most common people didn't have. So here you've got Saul of Tarsus with all this great education at his fingertips. You've got Menaean who probably had a lot of money and maybe some prominence and some power that went along with that. And then Barnabas, we don't know a lot about Barnabas' upbringing, but we do know that he sold a tract of land and gave the money to the apostles. If he sold a tract of land, he had to be successful enough in business to have been able to buy a tract of land. So he's not a pauper. He's not in abject poverty. He had some money, and he, he was a very generous guy and gave it all away. So we know that he had some success. We don't know anything really about Simeon or Lucius's background. They may have come from successful backgrounds, but they also may have come from very humble and poor settings. What we do know is that all these people come from various kinds of backgrounds, and they're all together now seeking to minister to the church. So they're a lot like America. You know, we talk about America being the melting pot of the world. All the countries of the world come here. The church at Antioch was a lot like that, and their leaders were like that too. The one thing they had in common was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ held them together, even when the rest of everything about them was so different from each other. So, a very diverse team of men. Now let's look at the devotion of this team. They were a devoted team. I want you to look at verse 2. It says that they ministered to the Lord. While they were ministering to the Lord... And fasting. Well, what does it mean to minister to the Lord? Does anybody have an ESV translation? The ESV says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. I personally think that's a really good, a a really good translation. To minister to the Lord is to worship Him. It's to seek Him. It's to, to... Linger in his presence, seeking to give something to the Lord. And I find it amazing that human beings 
have the capacity to be able to minister to the Lord. Because the Lord doesn't have any needs. Now, he ministers to me all day long every day because I'm such a needy person. Constantly having to ask the Lord for help. But God doesn't have needs for anything. In fact, just a few chapters later when Paul is preaching in Athens, he says in Acts 17.24, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served, and that word means ministered, nor is he ministered by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God is completely all-sufficient in himself. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's perfectly together. <laughs> but before he made any, any of us, God was still perfect all in and of himself, by himself. But yet, these, these men were ministering to the Lord, serving the Lord. It doesn't say they were ministering to the people. Now they did do that, but that's not what they're doing here. They're fasting, and as part of their fasting, they're ministering to the Lord. So let me just ask you, would someone characterize you as someone who just ministers to the Lord? Do you take joy and, and delight and pleasure in ministering to the Lord? Do you have times in your own life where you minister to the Lord? Think about the privilege of one of us being able to bring pleasure to God through our ministry to Him. <laughs> it's actually an astounding thought when you think about it. And that we are given the privilege of doing that. The, the God of all creation who created all the, the billions of stars and galaxies out there, that one, we have the privilege of being able to minister unto Him. I, and I take that to mean to, just to lavish our love upon Him. Express our gratitude and our thanks. Remember our opening scripture talks about the sacrifice of praise that is giving thanks to his name. The fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So I want to encourage you to take up your privilege and exercise that as a priest of God. One of your sacrifices that you get to offer is the sacrifice of praise. You get to get alone with God and minister to the Almighty. So consider that this morning. If there's any one thing that really struck me in, in this section of Scripture, it was this idea of ministering to the Lord. Not only did they minister to the Lord, but they fasted. While they were ministering to the Lord, they also fasted. They decided that they wouldn't be distracted by the preparation or the eating of food. They were going to put that aside and concentrate all of their focus upon the Lord and waiting upon the Lord together as they ministered unto Him. And they didn't just do this one time. It says in verse 2, they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And then the Holy Spirit spoke and said, set apart Barnabas and Saul. And then verse 3 says, then, after that, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So originally, there's this time of fasting, as there's worshiping the Lord. In the midst of that worship, the Holy Spirit speaks and gives a command. Later on, after that, we don't know how long, 
I mean, it could have been the next day. It could have been six months from now. I really don't know. It just says then after that, when they had fasted, they, they fasted and prayed again. So the first time that they fasted, they did so in conjunction with worship. The second time that they fasted, they did it in conjunction with prayer. Do you see that fasting is not an end in itself? Fasting accompanies something else. Fasting accompanies either worship or prayer. Fasting is to put a, a, an edge to your worship or to put an edge to your prayer. It's to make it more effective. And that's what saints have, have done with fasting for the last 2,000 years. They've used it as an aid in their ministry to the Lord or their prayer to the Lord. I'm afraid that we, we fail miserably when it comes to the spiritual discipline of fasting here in America. I know that this isn't the case in other parts of the world. Because when you read the missionary reports or read about what the, the believers are like in other places, they talk about fasting as a regular part of their life. We don't do that. There might be some Christians here and there. But if, as a general rule, we're very lackadaisical about the idea of fasting. Why do you think that is? Because it's painful. <laughs> Nobody likes to go without food. It hurts, you know? It's uncomfortable. And here in America, we like our luxury and our comfort, and uh, it might be our undoing. We, if we were rugged disciples of Christ, we, we would cast off our comfort for a day or, or longer. So this is something that I think we really need to, to, to grapple with. And I would encourage you, I encourage myself here too, to make fasting a regular part of your life before the Lord. Not something you do once a year, once every five years. Jesus said, when you fast. When you fast. He said that about prayer. When you pray. He said that about giving. When you give. He just assumed this is going to be part of our regular life as Christians, that we would fast because that would give us an edge to our prayer life. So I want to encourage you to, to start doing that. Make a commitment that you'll include fasting in your prayer life. And the way we can do that, folks, is if some special need occurs to you, that you say, yeah, you know, this would probably be a good thing for me to fast and pray about. Tell the rest of the church and say, you know, if there's anybody else in the church that wants to join me, I think the Lord would, would have me fast and pray about this. If you would like to join me, that gives us an opportunity to join in with you and it would also be awesome at the end of that day or whenever, whatever period of time you assign to come together and pray together about that particular need. I thought of the ladies' tea this Saturday. We want this to be more than just a fun time, right? I mean, it will be that. I'm sure it's going to be that. But let's, I, we, I'm sure Debbie wants it to be more than just a, a pleasant, fun time for the ladies. She wants to see some spiritual dynamics taking place. So why not fast and pray that God would bring people that really need to be there, that the Lord would minister through the women, through the word that you're going to share, through the song that's going to be shared, and through the love of the brethren. So I would, I'll just throw it out there. Why, why not we take some time as a church on Friday to fast? And you can decide how many meals that means, one, two, or three, you know. You can decide what you want to fast from. Some people don't fast from food. They fast from social media or their phones or whatever. But, but we, can, we can all 
take part in that that way. And so that when we see the Lord working, we can all rejoice because the Lord has used us to be part of that whole prayer time. So I just want to put a bug in your ear. If, if the Lord puts an idea on your heart to fast and pray about, share it with the rest of us. Okay, so we've seen that they ministered to the Lord, they fasted. The third thing we see here is that they heard from God. Verse 2 says, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Have you ever wondered how he spoke? Did the Holy Spirit speak audibly and the rest of the five heard an audible voice in the room? Well, of course, that, that could have happened. But my hunch is it probably didn't happen that way because we have prophets in the room and the Lord speaks through prophets. So my hunch is, I can't prove it, but my hunch is that God spoke through one of the prophets and gave a message to the rest of this team. That's, that's really what prophecy is, is God gives a revelation and they deliver a message spontaneously by the Spirit. So it, it's very likely, I think, that God used the gift of prophecy to deliver this message. So as they're together, praising, worshiping the Lord, fasting, waiting upon Him, there's a message from the Spirit. Maybe someone says, you know, the Lord has just impressed on my heart strongly, and I'm just going to throw it out there. I don't think people were saying, thus saith the Lord. But I believe the Holy Spirit is saying that He wants Barnabas and Saul to go, and that we're to set them apart and send them out. And he wants them to go. Notice also to which I have called them, past tense. He called them previous. He doesn't say to which I am calling them, but to which I have called them. It, it's, it seems to me that he had already called them to a, a work, a mission's work. And now it was time to set them apart and send them out to that work to which he had already called them. So perhaps this is not... A surprise to Paul and Barnabas, if he had already called them, they had already been thinking about this. It had already been going through their mind. They had already been probably chomping at the bit to get started. So they heard from God. They fasted and prayed, which we've already talked about that. But then verse 3 says that they continued to fast and pray even after the word came to them. Now, why would they fast and pray after God told them what to do? <laughs> to thank him? Yeah, that would be one thing, for sure. Maybe there was also an element of, have we, are we sure we've heard right? Are, are we sure this prophecy is from the Lord? Maybe there was some prayer. Lord, please just confirm to us if this is what you want. Remember in the New Testament that when someone gives a prophecy, the rest are to pass judgment. So they're not to blindly accept everything they that someone says is from the Lord, they're to weigh it and evaluate it. Um, maybe there's prayer for Barnabas and Saul to be um, prepared for the work that God is sending them out to do, that God would provide all their needs as they go out. We're not told how they had the money to buy food on this mission. Maybe the church took up an offering and said, hey guys, this is this for your food and lodging while you're gone. I, I don't know. But there was probably prayer for their provisions, blessing and power upon their ministry, that God would send them to the right people, 
that the Lord would even begin to open up hearts, you know, all these kinds of things would, would, would be prayed about. And then the last thing I see about this missionary team was that they sent their best. They sent their best two men. The church at Antioch was being required to give up their two best men. They weren't new converts. They were seasoned and proven men of God who had given themselves in ministry for a period of time to the saints. They were those who had been involved in teaching and shepherding the church at Antioch. They were gifted in teaching, in exhortation, and in evangelism. And I'm sure that they were loved and respected by the rest of the church. And so here, God is saying, take 40% of your leadership team and send them out. That would be hard. It's hard for us as a church when one family leaves. You know? We feel it. We feel the hurt and the, uh, the loss, the sense of loss when somebody leaves us. Well, here you've got five gifted members. Two of the five are being sent out. That would require a real sacrifice on the part of the rest of these guys because now they're going to have to make up for the loss of these two other men. And these three now are going to, to be ministering to the people rather than the five. It might be like cutting off an arm and a leg. And I'm sure there's going to be a time in our church when we're going to be required to give up and to send out people from our midst. We need to be willing. Doesn't mean we have to be... Um, <laughs> excited about those that we love leaving us but we can be excited if the Lord has truly called them to some place new we can be excited about what he's going to do in their lives so keep that in the back of your mind the Lord may call someone from our church he could call them to the mission field he could call them to another state he can call them to a different church because he has a work for them to do and we need to just allow the Lord to do that work without fighting him. Send them on their way, bless them, pray for them, support them. When, when our church in Milpitas sent our family out, they were so good to us. They, they supported us financially for three months because I had no money coming in. I was a window cleaner and I had no customers. So we moved in faith. We went to Sonora and I started hitting the streets and knocking on doors and trying to find work. But for three months, we couldn't pay our bills and the church just kept paying our bills. So they were a blessing to us. They sent us out and then they supported us. And after three months, the Lord had already built up the business enough to where we could pay our bills and it didn't have to do it anymore. But I mean, that's a great example right there of a, of a church being willing to give up leaders and then support them on top of that. So let's, let's wrap up our study in these verses and try to make some conclusions here. What can we learn from the Antioch Five? Well, I think we can learn to let what we have in common in Christ overcome any differences that we have. I think that you find the leadership team doing that. They're very different from each other. Different geographical locations, different religious backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, but they're all piled together here in a leadership team serving this entire church. Can't we do that on a church-wide level? Can't we find our unity in Jesus rather than our unity in politics? Amen. Or our, our unity that everybody looks like us or everybody has come from the same kind of background that we have. 
I think one of the beauties of the church is that you get all different kinds of people together so that you can learn from each other. Sometimes we're threatened when we're thrown into a situation where people don't look or act like us or they don't come from the same background that we do. One of the cool things about our little church is that we have had such great diversity when it comes to like um, racial diversity, right? We've had Middle Eastern folks, <laughs> Russians, Mexicans. Korean. Yeah, Korean, right? Do I leave anybody out? African Americans, Caucasians, we're all thrown into the mix. And that's in a church that can fit in a living room. It's just a small little church with this great variety. I think that's, that's a wonderful thing that the Lord has blessed us with. But let's make sure that we don't start making our unity revolve around something other than Christ. That would be a great mistake. And don't let those things separate you that are not found in Christ. Yeah. Okay, number two, welcome into this church people who are different from you. Let's be a welcoming church. People don't have to look like us to be welcome here. Right? They don't have to be like us. All they have to have is a desire to be amongst God's people, even if they're not Christians yet. Like I'm thinking of one brother that's different from a lot of us, but I, I'm so happy to see that the church has freely welcomed him and he feels a part. He feels like we're his family. That, that's what it needs to be. None of these other things really matter in the end. What matter is what we have together in Jesus Christ. The spiritual riches that we share together in Him. Number three, let us be a worshiping church. I hope that that, that, will, that could be said of the bridge. That the, when those folks get together, they are real worshipers. They minister to the Lord. They take their responsibility and privilege of ministering to the Lord seriously. I just want to encourage you to begin doing that in your private devotional life. Do you incorporate praise and worship into your time with the Lord on a daily basis? Do you sing to the Lord? Do you sing out loud to the Lord? If not, begin doing that. That's a, it's an important part of our communion with God is our worship of God. My son tells me in his church, <laughs> they go into their closet, light a candle, and they get down on their faces, and they pray. And I thought, what a great example. Let's, let's take ministering unto the Lord seriously, brothers and sisters. And then when we get together on a Sunday, it'll just be the overflow of what's happening in our private lives before the Lord. Fourth, let's be a church that fasts and prays. Not just praise, but also fasts and praise. And we've already talked about that, so I'm, I'm not going to beat a, that, a, a dead horse. <laughs> but I just want to encourage you. Make, don't forget about this. And go home and just forget about fasting. Let's start thinking about how we can incorporate that discipline into our Christian lives. And then fifth, let's be a church that's willing to send. That's a hard one. Because it is like cutting off your arm. It takes great commitment, great sacrifice sometimes. I have a friend who was pastoring a church in San Jose. And another fellow had come into a different part of San Jose and was trying to plant a church. 
and he came to my, my friend who was pastoring, and he said, is there any way you could help us out? Because we have, we have no people, we need resources. And so what my friend ended up doing is going to his entire church, telling him about this new church plant, and asking them all to pray about whether God would have them help this new church plant get started. And as a result of that, a good number of his church ended up going to help this new church plant get started. In fact, the new church has far more people at this point than the original one did. I thought, what a, what a sacrifice he was willing to make. When we were trying to start the bridge, I went to pastors and said, hey, can you guys help us? And nobody, nobody was willing to send us anyone. <laughs> but here you've got the opposite example going on in San Jose. So let's just remember that. Let's consider that. Um, we never know when the Lord is going to require us to sacrifice somebody or a whole, a whole family. So let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would take the, the things that we've seen in the Antioch 5, these prophets and teachers, and help us, Lord, to incorporate them into our church life. That's all we ask for, Lord. We ask you to do it now in Jesus' name. Amen.